I found that very interesting. <laughs> and I found it really interesting and in, in, oh. I found it to be a very interesting oh. I found it to be an an unusual and in some oh. I found it to be a really unusual and ah. Across whatever you listen to stuff on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast, episode 44. Happy New Year. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter, and I am joined, as always, by co-host and co-producer Kerr Lockhart. Hi, Kerr. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Ben. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be back, and thank you for getting us back in the saddle. Once again, people who are longtime listeners to the podcast will feel like they're being flooded <laughs> with episodes compared to my, my own usual two a year. So this is great. <laughs> well, I hope they're also enjoying the flood of the original eight episodes coming back into the feed. So those will be available, and they are evergreens. Yeah, it's, some of the show dates are a little far in the past, but I think a lot of what I'm talking about is still semi-current. And we planned an evergreen episode today where we've been doing yeah. things that have been based on what you've been doing lately. This is sort of a big general topic, but it was keyed by uh, a gig you had back in 2015. But I think yes. it addresses some real big topics of the way music functions with silent film something we've been trying to get the big universal picture of. Yeah. So in 2015, I was set to perform at the Silent Film Days Festival, or Stumfilmdager, in Tromsø, Norway, where I had been accompanying silent films every year since 2006. And this one particular year, they decided to, as the opening night program, present Charlie Chaplin's City Lights, accompanied by the Arctic Philharmonic. The previous year, the opening night, the Arctic Philharmonic accompanied A Dog's Life with Chaplin's score. And it was such a success and popular thing, they decided to do City Lights. And I was asked if, in addition to playing for films during the regular festival, to play the piano and celeste part with the Arctic Philharmonic for these performances of City Lights. Now, to be sure, this is a score that was issued with the film. It was released with a synchronized with score, a, yeah. which was the first Chaplin film done that way. When we yeah. talk about the earlier films, these are scores that he wrote later in life and synced to the films, sometimes having tinkered with the films. But this is an authentic part of the creation of the original film. It's all this one is, yeah. entity. It was... Yeah, it was written by Chaplin and orchestrated by Alfred Newman. How much of the score is Newman? How much of it is 100% Chaplin? Is a fun argument that lots of Chaplin experts can get into. My experience going on the, the ride with the film and with the score helped me develop my own impression of it. Timothy Brock, who is a conductor and musicologist and arranger since 1998, has been the Chaplin family's person who restores the scores and creates new arrangements that get either licensed or sometimes he'll go out and conduct. 
So Timothy Brock conducted these rehearsals and these four performances, two for the public and two for school groups that were brought in. This was a restoration of the score that was done by Timothy Brock. And so I got to play the piano and celeste part for the film. Now, I, I'm i much more familiar with the modern time score, having had the LP since I was <laughs> in, in, in middle school. And I'd seen City Lights, and I, I remember getting the DVD or a Blu-ray of it, and I thought, I don't remember a lot of piano. So I got it, and I listened to just the audio track, and I, I hardly heard piano at all. I thought, well, it's going to be a thousand bars of rest and a couple of plinks here and there. And I asked for them to send me the score ahead of time. I'm not a conservatory musician. I can't sit down and, and sight-read Shostakovich at the first and only rehearsal with the orchestra and perform it the next night. So about two or three weeks before I got on a plane, the score arrived from Bourne and Company, and it's it's wall to wall. I mean, there's very little in the way of rest. Ah. I mean, it's it's a lot of boom chick, boom chick, boom chick. I just ran it over and over. There are little figures here and there that I swear I can't hear in the original recording, but they're written, and I had to learn them as they were notated, and some of them were. Again, I'm not a conservatory musician, so I'm not used to playing music where I'm playing a melodic line in my right hand and with my left hand playing the the bass notes below it to the left of the and then the the accompaniment chords above it crossing over one hand to the other. But that's how the promenade theme is written. There are some figures I've really had to woodshed like crazy. The 1931 recording technology is sort of brutal on pianos in bands i just share my experience of having played piano at a dance band and uh-huh. and believing that i'm completely unheard because again it's mostly boom chick and yeah. it's strange if you take it out the absence is is palpable yeah so so i got the score i'm sweating bullets anyway because it's not just me i'm part of an orchestra and it's being conducted by timothy brock aside from having chaplin in the room no pressure Uh, (laughs) It was probably one of the most stressful and also rewarding uh, musical experiences scoring a film, which I didn't score. And and it really helped me understand and get a little more insight into or appreciation for Chaplin's choices in in music Mm -hmm. and how he wrote it and how it worked and why it worked. And, And again, because unlike everybody else in the orchestra that's facing away from the screen, I was in a position where I was all the way out on the end on a slight angle so the piano can be heard. But I... And I wasn't supposed to do this. But I snuck a look at the screen every once in a while when I was playing just, you know, something very, very simple. And I could just sort of glance to see, oh, this theme goes with that scene. And Mm -hmm. I had a unique experience that most pianists who play the piano part in this film, whether it's with Timothy Brock or any other symphony orchestra, have, which is that I'm a silent film accompanist. I'm used to getting inside the score, getting inside the film, and creating music that goes on the right and supports it. The only difference was that I was now doing it through Chaplin's choices, lining up stuff from the inside, choosing music and creating music, a point of view, as opposed to just watching the film and appreciating the score. As an example of Ben functioning in that accompanist mode, here are a few minutes from his improvised score from the 1921 Chick Sale movie, His Nibs, 
featuring an up-and-coming Colleen Moore, as recorded at Capitol Fest in Rome, New York, on August 14, 2021, on the Capitol Theater's original 1928 Muller Theater pipe organ. was a few minutes from Ben Modell's improvised score for His Nibs of 1921, recorded in August of 2021 at Capitol Fest on the Muller Theater pipe organ. I have a technical question, which I yeah. don't know whether it hap- happened in your rehearsal. Today, conductors are going out and they're conducting the score of the 1961 West Side Story. Yeah. And there are voices on tracks. They'll, they'll isolate the voices, just take the orchestra off. Now they're really, really locked into those tempos. And those conductors invariably work with click tracks. Oh, yeah. They have to. Did Brock have to coordinate that tightly with the picture? Yes, but he did not use a click track. Ha! Huh. Like I said, Timothy Brock restored the score. He knows it. And this is this was another part of the experience that I found absolutely fascinating. So first of all, about isolating the original recordings, there are a few moments in City Lights where, either for novelty or comic effect, there is some sound effects. So both the print that we used at one venue in a, in a city called Bodu, B-O-D-O with a slash through it, that was the DCP. And then when we were in Tromsø at the Kulturhuset, we used a 35 millimeter print both of which in the opening titles have a little black rectangle inserted in one of the credit titles that says restored by Timothy Brock. So he's credited on screen in the print and the DCP. 
because I was wondering, I was looking for cross cues or anything about the voices in the statue dedication or the bit with the whistle. The DCP, the digital file, and the print is completely silent except for those things. So the business with the whistle when Charlie swallows the whistle at the party is on the print. Because there's no way you're going to teach a percussionist, you know, with a few couple of rehearsals just to nail that. And I guess it was just easier than Timothy Brock having a whistle and doing because he's <laughs> got to conduct the whole thing. And the stuff with the kazoo with Henry Bergman and, and at the beginning. And some chaplain experts will know the answer to this, and I don't. It didn't sound like it was isolated from the original track. It sounded re-recorded. The kazoo stuff sounded just slightly different. That's just my ears. Mm -hmm. There's a moment where the drunk millionaire lands on the piano keys, and instead of hearing, instead of my playing that, it's on the track. So with a few exceptions, there's stuff on the track. One of the things I found fascinating was seeing how some of the cues are written out and experiencing how they are conducted. One of them that I thought was interesting was there's an agitato cue that is used in scenes of fright or peril and also the statue dedication scene, which I don't understand, you know. That one, if you read music, that sounds like it's a bunch of eighth notes. But they're written as quarter notes, and each bar of music is counted instead of going one, two, or one, two, three, four. It's in one. So we're all watching Timothy Brock <laughs> give us one, one, one. And it's pages of that over and over, and you've got to read like crazy because you cannot get lost because there's no real reference point to find it again. And then, this is the thing that I found fascinating was the And folks, the ben, waltz. Is, ben is actually oh, looking yeah. at the score, he, which he still has. Yeah. What I'm looking at, because you get sent the piano part, then you have to send it back. You don't get a, a view of the entire score from that. It's a little bit like those old scripts where the actors only had their own lines. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> what I had was the piano part. Now, again, unlike the entire rest of the orchestra, I knew... When I saw Boom Chick, Boom Chick, Boom Chick, I knew exactly what scene this was. And I think I watched the film while paging through my piano part. That Oh, that's this, that's this, that goes with this scene. Oh, okay, that's what this is, as opposed to just sort of being an abstract accompaniment part. But what I, what I have is a copy of a copyright deposit uh, manuscript that, that a friend of mine named Tom Naziola got for a, a, some research on a Chaplin project he was doing around 20 years ago. Uh, I was looking into the score for City Lights and got a copy of it from the Library of Congress. And I think the month before the lockdown in 2020, he and I met for coffee and catching up, and he handed me the copy of the score. He said, here, you can have this. What's fascinating about it is that there are lyrics written all the way through it, not just here and there for, for some of the light motifs, like, oh, this might be a popular song. And, and it does kind of help you remember the name or, name or come up with names for the different themes. What I have is a cue called There's Always Romance. There's some other interesting idiosyncrasies or anomalies in this piano score 
with a vocal line. For instance, some of the key signatures are completely wrong. Like the opening is written, if you know music, it's written in F major. But I can tell you from having sweated through this score a few times, it's that that it's in F minor. Uh, That meaning meaning that they they, uh, had to use accidentals? No, I mean, the, the way it's written in this copyright script is... Which is completely wrong, because as you know, it's... Oh, that was it's strange. Just, it was literally, the first was literally unrecognizable. Yeah. Like, what is yeah. that? And as soon as you that play the second... That is the, the opening second, theme. As soon that's, as you play the second, you after, go, oh, City Lights, yes. <laughs> right, exactly. This is totally unrelated to City Lights, but I have found that when I have used a theme that I've come up with for a film and I repeat it as a minor or vice versa, people don't know it's the same piece. So it's a little subliminal thing. But the other thing is that it's just written in time, meaning that little pauses and stuff like that aren't written. So what you see here, it's, it's a cue called There Is Always Romance. The way it's written is, is a straight waltz. But as you you know from watching City Lights, there's pauses all over it. You know, when he's looking at the statue and stepping back and stepping forward and stepping back. So the conductor is cueing each of these? Absolutely. So this may not make complete sense if you don't read music, but for each beat of the music, one, two, three, there is a note and a note, and then there's a squiggle indicating a rest, meaning you don't play here. And what's in the the piano part that I was playing is a little, what we call the bird's eye or fermata, the little uh, symbol over the rest, which means hold. So it's one, two, and then you hold and wait. And the conductor brings you in. So every other bar, every bar looks like this. And so the entire sequence is the entire, the, it's a huge, a full symphony orchestra plus a reed section. I mean, there's so many people in, in the pits for these, plus harp, Piano, celeste, I mean, and then a uh, wide battery of, of percussion and, and effects. Our eyes are absolutely locked on Timothy Brock uh, giving us the downbeat and the upbeat, the and one for absolutely every bar. So it's you're constantly stopping and starting. All the eyes are absolutely glued on the on the stick on the baton and timothy brock is giving us in some cases each note and by giving it to us i mean he's pointing up and down with the with the baton so this note goes here and because he knows the film excruciatingly well does not need a click track and also there's no way you could have a click track with that sequence i mean you just have to live with the film and, and know the film
And the other challenge for me, which has nothing to do with film accompaniment, but I'm sitting uh, at a piano that is all the way stage right in the pit. Like I said, it's a full symphony orchestra plus a full reed section, like five French horns and all this stuff. So I'm all the way at the end. And at one point, Tim tells me, you know, I'm, I'm behind a little bit. And I said that it didn't feel like I was behind. He said, the thing is that he said, because of the way sound travels, if I listen to the bass drum and the bass, by the time the piano sound gets to the middle, it's a hair behind. He said, just watch the stick. So now I have this metronome that I have to follow. None of us run click tracks. And so I'm watching the beat coming from Timothy Brock and also trying really hard to ignore the fact that physically I'm playing notes that are just ahead of what I'm feeling in my ears and my body from the bass we talked part of about the, the this, orchestration. We talked about this before starting to record that most of us keyboardists don't have the experience in an orchestra. We're used to being either alone or in a very small group, sometimes a group where we're playing by eye contact yeah. with, with each other. And the orchestra life is really different. Yeah, so Tim said, yeah, by the time the piano sound gets to the middle, it'll be in sync. Just watch the stick. So <laughs> this this particular scene, because the waltz in that scene where he's looking at the statue and going back and forth, it's so specific. You're just absolutely locked. But I'm also, out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking up at the, just fascinated by the whole process of doing this scene and the idea, and the idea of writing music like this because Chaplin knew, okay, this is going to be recorded, so I have complete control, and it doesn't have to just write music beds. They could start and stop this way. And I don't know if Alfred Newman said, said we can do it this way. You don't have to do music beds. I, we have no, without a time machine, we don't know. What's terribly interesting as you tell this story, in a sense, what you're doing there is Mickey Mousing, which people look down on because it's not really music. You're just playing notes. Blunk, blunk, blink, blink. You're illustrating yeah. exactly. Yeah. But what Chaplin has done there is he's got a melody. He's got a long-lined eight-bar melody. He's right. simply broken it up into little bits. So it is both disjunctive and united at the same time. It gives the audience, the ear, uh, something to yeah. hold on to from piece to piece. So it isn't just yeah, and chopped. It's not, and it's not. I don't think of this as Mickey Mousing because it winds up making the physical action more like a dance. Mm-hmm. You're post-scoring physical action as if it was movement choreographed to the music. And this is something that I picked up partially from doing this. And then over a bunch of years, I've just really gotten good at doing that. And just by watching an on-screen performer, whether it's in a drama or a comedy, you see the physical preparation to hit somebody or to open a door or to to close a door. And if you want to make it work musically with a resolve, you can absolutely do that and make it work musically, but not have it be like sound effects. Mm-hmm. I like the analogy of making it like dance or a, a, yeah. or a Well, sport. with Chaplin, especially the whole routine with, with the two statues, another sidebar, that whole sequence does not work in sound. And you don't think about it, but why doesn't Chaplin hear the elevator go up and down <laughs> behind him? Because it's a silent movie. The other thing that I, I realized about City Lights, and this was definitely not the intention, there's so many of the gag sequences almost scream at, at the industry, you idiots, look what you gave up. Mm-hmm, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. so There are so many 
iconic physical comedy sequences that you could not do in a sound film in, in City Lights. And, so, and it, that in this in this this is one of them. Not to mention, and it's like dance, the uh, undercranking, which he's still well, practicing. Oh. <laughs> he was, and 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 this is the first film where the cranking speeds are being recorded, take after take. And when I was doing minor cranking lectures, and, and then it was, um, we turned it into a video essay for Criterion. I was sent shooting records by the Chaplin uh, estate, and there it is, sixteen, sixteen. Sometimes he would take something at sixteen and 18, so we would have a choice later. There's a moment where Charlie borrows the millionaire's car, his fancy car, and drives off. And Raleigh has gone from, four, he goes from 14 down to 10 during the shot. Raleigh Tothero, it's the indi- cinematographer. Tothero, the, yeah, and that's how I got confirmation that the boxing match was absolutely taken at 16, knowing it was going to be shown at 24. The choice of kinds of music that the, the Chaplin makes... I'm going to say it was Chaplin and not Alfred Newman because all of Chaplin's following scoring still follows the same philosophy. is very specific and very interesting. The boxing match is, if you watch it, and you watch it with the sound off and you watch it at cranking speed, if you have a DVD or Blu-ray and bring it into your computer and watch it on VLC at 75% of the speed, what you see is people dancing at a tempo like... Yeah, I've noticed, you know, two things when you see that sequence at the speed it was shot. One, it doesn't look as hard to execute. When you see the finished thing, it's like, wow, that's really hard. It's like, oh, no, I see how they can do that. Secondly, it's not funny. Oh, oh, gosh, it's not. It's absolutely not funny. And this is the other thing that was one of the many things that really clinched it for me as far as as the speeds is that he absolutely knew if I do this at this speed and it's choreographed this way and it's run at this speed and who knows if there's footage that he shot at 18 and scrapped the whole thing then it will be funny and I've shown this to an audience and it's just it's just not funny but the the, the crazy thing is so even when when the boxing match is sped up it's yum bum da dum dum da dum bum bum but what's against it is I mean, it's that it's that motif. It's Philip and Glass it, it, it is doesn't, what that is. Yeah, <laughs> it practically is. Yeah, exactly. It, what's really fascinating is that it doesn't fit the rhythm of the dance that Charlie and Hank Mann are doing. It's an unusual choice, but I have seen that, again, except for this statue dedication, that theme is often used as a panic motif. You see it in here. It's, it's part of the sequence so, where the millionaire is going to commit suicide. There's a moment where that's brought in. And so it's usually that. It's the tramp state of mind is what you're saying, that agitation. I guess. I mean, it's it's what I would consider an agitato theme. If you listen to it by itself, it's interesting to see where that it's used in the boxing match where the physical movement has absolutely nothing to do with that feel. It's, and, it's, and, and you wonder, it's an interesting is he, choice. Is he covering his tracks? Is he saying, okay, I'm not going to show you how I came up with this tempo yeah. for the fight. I don't want to show you my bag of tricks, so I'm going to cover the actual tempo that's here yeah, with some other music. With something else. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, th- I think what's interesting about it is that it's a moment where instead of it looking like dance, it actually adds more. Your ears hear the panic, and your right brain tunes out the rhythm of the dance that they're doing in the ring, which I find, again, it's 1931. No one's done this. With the exception of what Max Steiner is doing at RKO, nobody is doing underscoring. 
I mean, this is the other thing that continually blew my mind about the City Lights score is how far ahead of the game it is in terms of its musical choices. And it's not something you think about, but the boxing match, until you watch it with the sound off, I mean, it just looks like people hopping around mm-hmm. and you forget about it. And, and the music affects that as well. <laughs> The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film entertainment. Film International says Marion Davies is an actor whose reputation has suffered through no fault of her own. Despite the fact that she was a gifted comedian who appeared in a string of popular films, Davies is too little regarded today. Undercrank Productions has been leading the way in correcting that misimpression. In association with Ed LaRusso and the Library of Congress, Undercrank presents 1923's Little Old New York, in which Marion arrives from Ireland to claim a family fortune, posing as her younger brother, Patrick. She meets Larry Delavan, who had planned on receiving that inheritance, and falls in love with him, who believes she is Patrick. Packed with humor, charm, thrills, a lavish production scale, and strong ensemble cast, including Louis Walheim and Harry Watson Jr. You know him as Musty Suffer. This DVD edition presents the film in a new 2K digital scan made from a 35mm nitrate print in the collection of the Library of Congress, and features a new theater organ score by Ben Modell. Leonard Malton writes, Davies is just so likable. Little Old New York features elaborate sets by Joseph Urban, world-renowned architect and designer of the Ziegfeld Follies. Movie Silently writes, Marion Davies is as charming as always. This release represents a noticeable and appreciated improvement over anything that was available before. The film is accompanied by an excellent organ score composed and performed by Ben Modell. Selig Film News writes, As with many silence films I watch, this film is a very good cast and a very good script. If you are a fan of silent films in general, and especially fans of Miss Davies, I can certainly recommend this title to you. Little Old New York is available from Amazon, TCM, Deep Discount, Critics' Choice, Movies Unlimited, and other dealers in classic film. You can find the links at undercrankproductions.com. That's Marion Davies in Little Old New York. that one of the most famous themes is not actually by Chaplin. Right. It's a piece called La Viola Terra, and it is the theme for the blind flower girl. What I find interesting about it is that it sounds like a piece that Chaplin would have composed.
I find that a lot of Chaplin's themes are deceptively simple, and from the outside, you can look at them and say, oh, it's just somebody taking their finger and wandering up and down a keyboard. I mean, the promenade theme is... So it's just somebody going up a scale. Even smile, you know, from modern times is just... You could say, oh, it's just all the keys that are adjacent to one another, but they're, interestingly, very catchy melodies, but they're not so involved that it's distracting from what's happening on screen. Just to be clear, so there's, there's very few intervallic leaps that make a sung melody memorable. There's no somewhere, oh boy, you're jumping an octave or something yeah. like that. But there's an art to knowing the note of the scale to start your little scale or motion on it, because it's going to be different if you start on the third note of the scale or if you start on the fifth note or the first note. All those yeah. will give the melody a different character if you're going to noodle up and down the scale. Yeah, and it doesn't come off as noodling at all. At all, that's the thing that's yes. fascinating. Never, never realized and, it till now. And some of the melodies are arpeggiated chords, meaning a chord. That's cut up into individual pieces. So a chord is... Or, and I'm going to get this wrong, but you know the, the music from the one of the factory scenes in modern times... But again, there's so much happening visually, anything that's more complex is going to be a little distracting. And maybe this was a part of the plan, and maybe that's just what he what struck his fancy in terms of melody. But the thing is that it does work as a, a melody that's catchy enough to catch your ear, but not so interesting that it distracts. As an example of music designed to support the film rather than call attention to itself, here's Ben's score for The Plowshare, a rare Edison biograph film as improvised at the Museum of Modern Art on September 17, 2021. This is the first three minutes of the film.
is a few minutes of Ben's score for the Edison Biograph film The Plowshare as improvised in September 2021 at MoMA. So the love theme between the tramp and the flower seller, uh, which in the copyright deposit script is called Smiling. Interesting. Here's another Chaplin melody. It's a love theme. The lyric is smiling. We'll be smiling right along, right along with a cheerful song. It's another thing where you could just say, oh, it's just wandering up and down the keyboard. it's this really gut-wrenching emotional theme and this is i remember when we were in rehearsal because it's the the strings are screaming this uh, especially at the very end and timothy brock you give the note quasi puccini You know, that's the kind of sound. But again, here is a theme that, from just looking at it on a keyboard, it looks like somebody is wandering up and down the piano, but it's this this beautiful, beautiful theme that, again, doesn't distract from the on-screen action. And this is another thing that came out of the rehearsal, which was I noticed that Timothy Brock made sure the orchestra was playing the way musicians played in 1931, so that the audience was hearing not only the original score, but they were hearing a live version of the original score. All the way down to sometimes he travels with a 1920s choke cymbal, which is a cymbal, C-Y-M-B-A-L, that is a certain size that you would hear in dance bands, because not everybody has one of these, so he brings it. So that you are hearing what, what you're supposed to be hearing. That, that comes along. He gave uh, both the strings and the reed players a note to have way, way, way more vibrato because that's the way musicians played. And if you think of the Guy Lombardo sound that we hear every year on January 1st, that's that sound where you, that, that saxophone section with that wild vibrato. That was something that that got worked on, as was the way string players would play what's called a slur, which is written with a note and then another note next to it, and then connecting the two above it is an arced line. And if there are two different notes, you just don't disconnect between the two. So instead of going, it would be. And what 
string players used to do is they would slide. They'd actually portamento. From, yeah. Portamento. So Timothy Brock reminded people that this is how, so when you see a slur figure, slide up. Mm. And the other thing was that there was a party sequence where there's a dance band playing. Everybody had to be reminded that the swing eighths that are written are to be played exactly as written as dotted eighth and a a sixteenth. Meaning that if you're not a musician, just think Lawrence Welk. Playing instead of a triplet feel. So there's a theme during one of the parties. This is the point that was made in rehearsal, that, that swing didn't come in till 35 or 36, and this is 1931. So instead of playing, we had to make sure we were playing. And so we, that kind of clip sound was part of the rehearsal process. The other thing during rehearsal, just is another thing that would only happen if you were someone who's a film accompanist. We get to the first day of rehearsal, everyone's getting settled in and they're warming up and everything. And Timothy comes in and starts, he says hello to the concertmaster and goes around to the different musicians and sections. And he comes over to me, oh, Timothy Brock. I said, Ben Modell. And he looked at me, he said, the silent film composer. I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing here? I said, this is the opening night of the silent film festival. He had no idea because, you know, he, didn't, he definitely knew he wasn't going to see me. You know, I'm assuming he, he has a talent manager who handles all this stuff. And no one is going to say, oh, I happen to notice that Ben Modell is in the orchestra from the U.S., even though you're in the, in the, above the Arctic Circle. So what would happen? So, you know, so we connected. It's, it's one of those things, you know, uh, he knew we had never met, but he knew who I was. I knew who he was. And in a rehearsal situation, when you're talking to different sections, you mention them by name. So it would be violins, I need more of this, or reeds, I need you to hold back on this. Ben, at letter, fi- at letter M, you know, I, I was called out by name, so I, again, no pressure, but it, it was just an, an unusual, okay, Ben, this is all you at that, you know, there's a couple of places where, uh, somebody at, at the cocktail party that the uh, the millionaire has. Somebody, there's a piano solo that I had just worked on like crazy. But playing the score, and because it wasn't super involved, most of it's boom chick stuff, boom chick, boom chick, boom chick. And I'm not supposed to look away. But I kept glancing up at the screen, which is just off to my left. And the the orchestra is not watching the film. I don't know if the orchestra had ever seen City Lights or knew the film at all. They're facing out toward the audience and, and watching the conductor. And I'm I'm in an unusual position where because of the the piano is like at a, at a 70 degree angle 
because of the direction the piano has to be and the position I have to be in to see the conductor, I can also see the screen and I, I would glance up to see which cue was going with which scene to better understand the score, you know, from the inside, going on the ride with the score while the film was playing with an audience. And that was the other thing that was interesting between the rehearsals and the performances. All of a sudden, the laughs were there. So I could see how the score, working with the film or supporting the film, then had this reaction from the audience. It was a unique experience. And Yes, after each rehearsal, I had to take a walk for an hour just to clear my head because it's a very different experience playing a written score that's written by Charlie Chaplin and you have to absolutely nail it. And the responsibility, I felt, on top of the fact that, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not a conservatory-trained musician, so this was hard for me to do, even with what I was doing is playing a lot of boom chick, which, which I also remember Timothy saying that it's a color thing. Yes, you don't maybe you don't hear, but like you're saying, Kerr, without it, you notice that it's not there. So there, there are some places where I had melody, like the promenade theme, and there a lot of it is. One of the things that struck me about some of the themes that Chaplin has written is that they are not a strict 8-bar or 16-bar structure. There are seven. I don't think he was doing it to be clever, and it's not to fit a scene that's on screen. Like, when I write an orchestral score, every once in a while, I'll put in what I call an elbow, like a 2- or 4-bar phrase that isn't quite a vamp. It'll repeat the previous two bars to support the rhythm of a gag. But even the the main theme, which is a, a very quick waltz, the end of the phrase is after seven bars and not... I found it to be a really unusual and in some ways progressive choice to have a phrase at seven bars instead of eight. And it's not like someone being clever or utilizing an, an odd number time signature like Dave Brubeck would. There's another one in a couple of the party scenes and it's fast as heck. I just remember because my part is and it all looks the same. I'm playing this and it's two chords. It's a minor chord and it's fifth. And I'm just playing madly. And so it all looks the same. And you have to just, with your eye, track every single bar while also absolutely being glued to the baton. So you're staying in sync. And I have to also, you know, stay ahead a little. But there's this thing. It's 
not like you can feel like, oh, if I'm lost, I know at the end of the eight or 16, it'll go to the G7, and then another, another eight, it'll go back to the C. It's like in the middle of a bar, it switches. So it's an unusual choice. And so as much as you might say, oh, a lot of Chaplin's music is very simplistic, and it's a Mickey Mousing, I think they're very interesting choices and very deliberate and it totally works with the film. I have so much respect for the score just because of how out of nowhere it comes in terms of accompaniment and underscoring techniques when nobody is doing this. Silent film scoring up till around 1929, these mood cues that are in everybody's music libraries, and there's no stop-start in the middle of a waltz like that, and it's all stuff that's meant to be easily played. So most most scoring is just a series of music beds uh, with some some use of light motifs and tends to be a little repetitive. And then this score for a silent film made in 1931, it leaps ahead in terms of underscoring. It doesn't follow the model of everything that was being done two years prior. Where did he come up with this idea that, oh, I can do this? And to the credit of the Arctic Philharmonic and anybody else who has to perform this, in 1931, they could stop every reel at the end of every reel, <laughs> which is every 10 or 11 minutes, and we're playing for our, you know 90 or 100 minutes. I, and the the music in, in modern times, I don't know how how orchestras get through it. If, if you can't stop at the end of every reel, and that some of that music is just really intense. The much more sparing use of light motifs, the creation of melody, putting certain mood music against scenes where maybe you wouldn't necessarily put it. It's so far advanced. I got so much out of it. And so when I play it for a Chaplin film now, I have this sensibility in mind. that Oh, this is the kind of music Chaplin would use in a scene like this. A lot of that has been informed by my going on the ride with the score for City Lights in 2015 over and over. But I think in general, it's reminded me that it's okay to stop playing every once in a while. The score isn't a constant wall-to-wall carpet of sound. And something I've done in the last several years is I've gotten myself good at watching a scene and playing for it. And as I can feel in my gut that this scene dramatically is wrapping up, resolve the music and so that I can finish it. During a fade out. Mm -hmm. And then just arbitrarily pick some modality to move into for the next scene, even if it's a film I've never seen before, because I can and I can turn it into something. But the idea is, is to make the music look like it was a po- <laughs> deliberate post-scoring. I can almost see the the aperture start to close and then. <laughs> Well, that's been episode 44 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. This is the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm Ben Modell, a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter, and I'm so glad you, you subscribed and you're listening and you found the podcast. I want to thank my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart, for uh, all the scheduling and engineering and especially um removals 
involved in the fine-tuning of each episode, so thank you, Kerr. Now, this was a really instructive episode. I really hope the audience enjoys this one. You know, I, I say this on most of our episodes, but uh, there is no such thing as why wasn't this advertised more, uh, and it's up to us fans. If you hear something you like, uh, share it, whether you feel like you're a publicist or not. The best way to make that ripple effect happen is for you to spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again. No, we won't see you anywhere. We'll, we'll be speaking to you and playing for you again on our next episode. Thanks for listening. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell.